either we say that you know someone like Matthew or possibly Luke came up with that brilliant idea and then credited Jesus with it or we say no actually we've got one genius teacher he came up with that idea and other people have faithfully copied it down and so really it's not that other scenarios are impossible but the simplest scenario is that Jesus gave these teachings and the teachings were written down and people often don't see enough how much simplicity is important does doctrine really matter the apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine welcome to credo podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Usually when you listen to a podcast, I am talking to a theologian or a scholar out there on rare occasions, though, we have the joy and the privilege of having one right here in the studio, and that is the case today. I am joined by Peter Williams, who is the principal of Tyndale House. He's also the affiliated lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Uh, you know him from so many of his books. Uh, he's, of course, served uh, on the uh, translation committee for the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, of the Bible, and he's also uh, had a number of books released lately. He's the associate editor of the Greek New Testament, uh, which is produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge, and uh, you may have a copy, if you're listening to this, you may have a copy from Crossway, for example. Uh, but he's also written another book recently called Can We Trust the Gospels? That, too, is published by Crossway. Peter, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Great to be with you. Well, I think for this, for our time together, it would be uh, helpful to listeners out there, whether they're a pastor in the local church, maybe they're a student planning on on becoming a scholar or in the process, or maybe they are just a, a churchgoer out there seeking to understand the scriptures better. Uh, I think it would be helpful for us to address the Gospels in particular uh, maybe you could start us off by just discussing how we are to read the Gospels, uh, you know, when we read, when we pick up any uh, contemporary book of literature, whether it be in theology or some other field. Uh, we are used to, for, for example, we're used to reading uh, the author, and then he very uh, directly, explicitly, it's, it's hard to miss. Uh, sometimes it's, it's a block quote. Uh, he will quote someone else. But when we read the Gospels, whether it's Jesus or the Gospel writers themselves, it doesn't quite work that way, does it? No, and I think one of the biggest hermeneutical keys to understanding the Gospels is actually reading the Old Testament. I mean, you open up Matthew's Gospel, and the first thing it has is a genealogy where so-and-so begets, begets, begets all the way down. And that really is very similar to Genesis 5. Genesis 5 begins in the Greek. It's the book of Genesis. That's actually the same first words we have in Matthew. Go over to Mark and it's straight into prophecies from the Old Testament. Luke, you've got this opening scene, which sounds very much like an opening scene from 1 Samuel. Um, John, opening words copied really from Genesis 1 verse 1. So I think that um, we shouldn't just come to the, the Gospels from nowhere. 
uh, one of the key ways of understanding them is to look at the whole of the Old Testament and how much they reflect that. When we read the Gospels, uh, sometimes it's a challenge for us as Christians to, and and let's be honest, uh, there are many attacks or, or critics uh, out there who, who challenge our understanding of the Scriptures. Uh, the Gospels so- sometimes seem to be front and center. Uh, the, the Gospels are a favorite uh, target for critics. Uh, when we read the Gospels, it's really important then, as you're talking about just now, it's really important that we understand not just the genre, but the way that they, they these Gospel authors intended us uh, to read them. Mm-hmm. Now, part of what, what that means is when we come to certain sayings of Jesus, uh, not just the, the commentary of, say, a Matthew or a Mark or a Luke or a John, but the, the very sayings of Jesus, uh, sometimes the, the objection is, well, uh, aren't these invented? Uh, are, are these fabricated even? And uh, w- how do we respond to that? Is it, is it the case that these are uh, these sayings are invented? Yeah, and I think there are many different levels of, uh, you can look at that. I mean, f- firstly, if people invented the sayings of Jesus after um, his death, you know, um, why would they not get him and put into his mouth all sorts of things that people were thinking about at a later stage? Like, what do you do with Gentiles in the church? Um, how to run a church meeting. Those would be great things to have him comment on, but he doesn't. So that's one point. Then you've got, particularly in the first three Gospels, lots and lots of parables. And this is a particular form of saying, which is not common amongst early Christians. So it's unlikely that they came up with that. And these parables have certain hallmarks about use of the title Son of Man and the kingdom and so on, which really do make them a group. And it doesn't look like um, let's say Matthew and Luke have independently invented parables. There is a commonality uh, to them. So that's another side. Then you look at things where, for instance, Jesus uh, says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, uh, he gives the golden rule, you know, do unto others what you'd have them do to you. Now, either we say that, you know, someone like Matthew, or possibly Luke, came up with that brilliant idea and then credited Jesus with it. <laughs> or we say, no, actually, We've got one genius teacher. He came up with that idea and other people have faithfully copied it down. And so really, it's not that other scenarios are impossible, but the simplest scenario is that Jesus gave these teachings and the teachings were written down. And people often don't see enough how much simplicity is important in deciding between theories. So uh, as Richard Swinburne, the philosopher, has said, um, there's an infinite number of theories to account for every phenomenon. An infinite number of theories. There's not an infinite number of simple theories. You know, you can always have, you can invent as many aliens as you like and, you know, disappear in certain situations. You can have complicated scenarios that explain things, but they are not simple. Uh, scenarios. And what we have is a very simple um, mechanism where you have one great teacher, Jesus, and those things get written down uh, subsequently. And that's by far the easiest explanation for the data. Now, when we're looking at the data uh, in particular, sometimes we can compare, say, uh, a Matthew to a, to a Mark or a Mark to a Luke or a Luke to a John uh, and sometimes even the synoptics as a whole can be compared to John's gospel. It, it doesn't take much. I mean, as soon as you get into John 1, it becomes clear that John is writing in a, in a certain style. He's writing even a certain content that is uh, unique and even different at times, not all the time, but at times from, say, a Matthew or or Luke yeah. or a Mark. Uh, that has led some 
who are critical to say, well, uh, this difference is is so significant, mm-hmm. and there's such discontinuity that there can't be a compatible uh, relationship between John and the synoptics. In fact, they might even go further and, and draw implications for Christ himself, that John is presenting us with uh, a different type of Jesus, or, or they mm-hmm. may even say uh, John's gospel can't be trusted like the synoptic gospels. How, how do we make sense of those type of objections. Yeah, well, I think, I think they're, they're complex and you need to get into the detail. But I mean, for instance, there's a particular way that John speaks, uh, that Jesus speaks in John, where he's speaking a lot about his relationship with the Father and what's been given to him and so on. And it doesn't occur in Mark and it doesn't occur in Luke. But there's just three verses in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, where suddenly you get this sort of thing. So this is verse 27. All things were given to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows... Uh, nor does uh, anyone know that, um, sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and to whom the Son reveal, uh, chooses to reveal him. And so what you find is this is a very Johannine type way of thinking, and there it is, slap banging in the middle of Matthew. So it's as if um, there's a whole aspect of the way Jesus speaks, which is not recorded in the synoptics except for in this one place. But of course, that's often the way things are in life. I mean, you can get to know someone somewhat well, and then you're suddenly surprised by a talent or ability or interest that they have. Uh, what we have in the words of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very brief in terms of what they record uh, of Jesus. It's not massive lengths of, of text. And... Um, it's not that they say Jesus doesn't speak the way uh, he speaks in John's gospel. And then you also find some um, overlap. So for instance, the title Son of Man occurs in the first three gospels and in John, and that some of the same themes occur in relating it to authority um, and the glory of the Son of Man. And so these are common themes. John has Jesus saying, I am sayings, but we also have a different sort of I am saying in the Synoptic Gospels, where there's a question of, uh, uh, you know, who, who is this person? And he'll say, I am at the trial and in the garden and so on. Um, so I'd want to say that there is, there, there are all sorts of signs of, of contact and overlap uh, with these things. And those, those need to be taken seriously. Um, the distance between the Synoptics and John isn't bigger than, for instance, we get in a couple of different you know, lives of Alexander the Great. So I'd, I'd want to say, you know, you've got to get it in perspective. Let me just give you uh, one case study, and uh, this one won't be foreign to you, of course. Uh, you've dealt with it before. Uh, when we look, for example, at the resurrection of Christ, we come to Matthew 28, 9 through 10, uh, and then we say we turn to John 20, 17, and uh, we, we might, uh, as we're working through both of these accounts, uh, we might realize, well, there's there seems to be differences, major differences, but also there are some similarities when mm-hmm. it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. How how does say Matthew and John? Uh, why are there differences, and and how do the similarities actually help us? Well, I think um, you know when you've got two different people recording um, uh, the same set of events, they will often differ, and particularly if they've talk to different eyewitnesses, different people. I mean, it, it would have been a chaotic morning with, if you just add the details in the Gospels together of the resurrection morning, you've got at least six different women um, who are uh, connected with the tomb. Uh, you've got movements. And so what 
and 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 you know these women don't all simultaneously go inside the tomb and so on they see different things so you know when you've got questions of was it one angel or two and you know are they angels or men wearing white well guess what men wearing white is, is a way of talking about an angel so you, you get those sort of differences which aren't um very deep but yes the resurrection accounts of matthew and john are different, but they've got some same underlying things. For instance, the tomb is seen first, then Jesus. That's very important. Uh, so it's the order is tomb, angel, uh, Jesus in John. Um, and um, it's difficult to be sure in Matthew whether it's tomb, angel, Jesus, or tomb and angel together, then, then Jesus. But so that, some of those same sorts of orders. And then as the women meet Jesus in Matthew, he gives them a message to go and talk to his brothers. This is exactly what he says at, at the same equivalent point to Mary Magdalene in John's gospel. So it's it's a, a tiny agreement we get, which assures us that it really is quoting real words. And because otherwise, there aren't many signs of a relationship between Matthew and John. So it's unlikely that one has copied a detail from the other. If they were going to copy, why didn't they make their accounts more similar? So I would say that this is a very good sign of truthfulness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and you've demonstrated this uh, throughout your book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Sometimes the discontinuity between accounts, contrary to what we might assume at first glance, doesn't hurt the credibility of the gospel. Sometimes it can actually help as we're trying to understand what you're talking about, this type of simplicity that's at play. Now, let's let's transition a little bit here from looking at some of the specifics to uh, maybe the, the big picture, even what happens after the Gospels are written. Uh, we live in the 21st century, and uh, sometimes that can be overwhelming. Uh, some will say, well, uh, how in the world could we trust uh, these accounts, four accounts at that, when there's so much time in between? Uh, I mean, hasn't hasn't everything? Uh, I mean, even even from the time of when Jesus lives, some will say, from the time when Jesus lives to when the gospel accounts are written, there that too is is a significant amount of time. <clears throat> Surely something was lost in translation. Yeah. Yeah. How do you respond to this type? Well, of... Well, I mean, I, I think of my ninety eight year old granny and how you know if I ask her things about the Second World War, she can tell me uh, the you know th things that happened seventy eighty years earlier. Um, so. I, I think that the question of the amount of time is not so significant as the um, quality of reporting, the means of transmission, the number of steps. But I want to say that we've got plenty of signs within the Gospels that they have to be not coming through a vast number of steps. Because if they do come through a vast number of steps, wouldn't we expect the basic geographical outline of the narrative to be corrupted? Um, and, you know, that's that's not what we've got. Um, so I'd want to say <clears throat> that um, I don't have particular dates for the Gospels, but they, we there's no reason to think that they come through a really um, extended process. Time is significant there. Uh, and, and maybe the... the I like the example you give with your granny because sometimes we can make too much of it um, mm -hmm. and uh, treat the the first century or even the second century for that matter, but treat uh, the first century uh, as if the the time gap is is um, something that they can't overcome. But clearly, that's not the case, uh, even in our own human experience. Now, one of the um, one of the most uh, famous, or, or perhaps for some people, the most infamous uh, critics. 
of uh, the scriptures or of the gospels in particular is someone like uh, a Bart Ehrman. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read to you, this is a paragraph um, from his book, Jesus Interrupted, revealing the, the hidden contradictions in the Bible. Um, and then the, this uh, subtitle in parentheses and why we don't know about them. I'm going to read to you a paragraph from his book and uh, give you the chance to maybe clarify and respond to it. He says this, uh, one of my favorite apparent discrepancies, uh, I read John for years without realizing how strange this one is, comes in Jesus's farewell discourse, the last address that, Jesus's, that Jesus delivers to his disciples at his last meal with them, which takes up all of chapters 13 and 17 in the gospel according to John. In John 13, 36, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? A few verses later, Thomas says, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. And then a few minutes later at the same meal, Jesus upbraids the, his disciples saying, now I'm going to the one who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? And then he, he gives this uh, very uh, short but uh, critical conclusion. He says, either Jesus had a very short attention span or there is something strange going on with the sources for these chapters, creating an odd kind of disconnect. Is there a disconnect? Well, I mean, what I think he does there is he shows that he's not been a very good reader of the fourth gospel because actually the fourth gospel has a number of these formal contradictions and also um, plays between a sort of literal physical meaning of something and a more metaphorical meaning. <clears throat> so it seems to me there that people are asking him physically where he's going. You know, they're wanting to know at a very trivial level. Um, and what they're, none of them are asking him is, where are you going in spiritual terms, which of course is to be with his father. And um, so you, you can see that there's a dullness um, uh, there in their asking, and he's upbraiding them for that. And I think, um, you know, the way Ehrman reads it shows that he's almost reading with a, um, a spirit of trying to find a fault. And of course, he does find a fault. But um, unfortunately for him, it's just not a very good example. I mean, he has other examples in his book, Jesus Interrupted, which, which are better than that one. But that's, in a sense, shows the weakness of his method. Hmm. Now, last question here, and maybe we can, uh, we've, been, we've been talking about the specifics, the Gospels, uh, particular Gospels, uh, the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but maybe as we conclude here, we can take a step back, a big step back, and talk about the big picture uh, of not just the Gospels, but the Bible as a whole, uh, what's, what uh, some have uh, called biblical theology. Uh, when we look at what Jesus is saying, and when we ask this question, even of the Gospels, you know, can we, can we trust them? Uh, of course, we're not just talking here, are we, about human authors. We're talking also and assuming in many ways, as I, I would argue that Jesus does, that there is a divine author mm -hmm. and not just a divine author as if in some deistic sense he, you know, inspired the biblical books and just kind of wiped his hands of it and, and stepped back, but a divine author who is revealing himself progressively. Yep across the canon, and uh, we, we could put this in various ways, but even um, infusing that story, uh, the whole canon from be beginning to end with a type of divine authorial intent. What does that look like? But more importantly, why is this divine authorial intent so crucial for understanding 
what Jesus is claiming and what the gospel writers believe? Well, I think, um, you know, Scripture is where God speaks and we're interested in hearing his voice and Christ is interested in hearing his voice and communicating that to us. And so that's really where, you know, we get excited at the thought of God speaking to us and he speaks to us through people. Um, and uh, you, you get at the beginning of Hebrews where he's spoken through prophets, he's now spoken through his son. And so what you see is it's God speaking all along. And what I think... Uh, we need to do is we need to focus on how we can understand uh, God's voice. And one of the clearest ways is using Jesus as the best teacher, the best guide. He teaches us how to handle the Old Testament, how you read it in order. So, you know, you, you make sure that when you read about divorce in the law of Moses, you recognize that it was, wasn't like that in the beginning. Uh, and so he's, he's got a very um, simple, progressive way of reading things. And we're meant to read the scriptures in their um, order, the, the correct order of the narratives. Um, I'm not saying that there is a um, special order in which they have to be bound under one physical cover in English or Hebrew, but I am saying that there is a certain logical order in which Exodus has to come after um, Genesis and Leviticus has to come after Exodus and so on, and that this is the way in which we use that in order to guide us. Just a follow-up question here. Why is it that sometimes even... Uh, as evangelicals, uh, we, we sometimes struggle with this. Maybe there's some good motives, right? We're trying really hard to pay attention to the grammar of the text. We're trying really hard to pay attention to historical background, both incredibly important, both vital for exegesis. Um, but do we, does there have to be more than that uh, when we're interpreting not just, say, a single text, but maybe a whole gospel? Yep. And how does, um, say, divine authorial intent, you know, we've been talking about Matthew or John, how does that then color the way that those biblical authors then present us with Jesus Christ? So I think um, the clearest clue to reading scripture is scripture itself, um, and that the way you get to understand the Gospels is to read all of the rest of Scripture and see it in the light of that, and you'll see so many reflections. It's almost like, um, you know, a jewel, a, a diamond with many uh, different faces, and you can't look at each face individually. Actually, it's the whole that, that brings out the glorious reflection, and that's why I'd say, you know, if I were just to isolate Matthew's Gospel, well, it's absolutely great, but if it was sitting there on its own, it would be rather incomplete. So I'd want to say that uh, we look at scripture as a whole, uh, background information, archaeological information are very important, but let's not forget that scripture is also the best cultural and historical guide to the Old Testament period, in the case of the Old Testament, and Second Temple Judaism is, I mean, the New Testament is a phenomenal resource for understanding Second Temple Judaism. So let's not treat it as if it's completely sealed until we've discovered and deciphered Ugaritic uh, before we can understand the Psalms or, you know, until we've uh, read all of our classical sources before we can understand the Gospels. I think that's that's wrong. It's good to do those things uh, to, to sharpen our understanding, but it's not that people can't get a basic understanding without that. We've been talking to Peter Williams, who is the principal of Tyndale House. Uh, he's the author of uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, I would also encourage our listeners not just to pick up uh, some of these books, but uh, also to pick up the Greek New Testament that's been produced at Tyndale House. I think you will enjoy it. 
you'll find it uh, accurate and uh, just illuminating into the text itself. Peter, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Pleasure. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.